and welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Anna. And today we have Stevie. Hello. Stevie, hi, welcome. So would you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a PhD researcher here at Manchester? Yeah, okay. So I did my undergraduate degree quite a number of years ago now at the University of East Anglia. I studied American literature with creative writing and I graduated in 2013. (laughs) I just got a me too from Georgia there. (laughs) Um, And then I, I took four years out and went to work. And then while I was working, I really missed university and studying and research. And at the time, my partner was at the University of Manchester. So I moved up here while he was doing his research and being so close to the universities and having access to public lectures and things like that sort of made me realise what I was missing out on. So I came to the University of Manchester in 2017 to do my Master's in Gender, Sexuality and Culture um, and then came straight through into the PhD, loved it and realised that this is possibly what I should have been doing. <laughs> That's It's unbelievable how similar our stories are. Pretty much the only different detail is the subjects we studied and the fact that I was at Manchester for my undergrad as well. So I graduated my first undergrad in 2013 took a few years out, worked, really started to miss it, came back to Manchester for the Masters in 2017. We could even have been in the same classes because I took some classes in gender and sexuality. How strange is that? Oh my goodness. What (laughs) modules did you take? Um, So there was one that was like a co-produced by gender and sexuality in history. It was like history of gender and sexuality. And there was loads of people from that course... Uh, It was an Irish guy named Oliver and... Yeah, yeah. Ollie. Oh, my goodness. And a person named Austin. Yes, I know Austin. Oh, that's so great. I was was very... I experimented quite a lot with different disciplines during my undergrad. So when I... And it didn't always pay off. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when I got to master's, I stayed pretty heavily in literature, which is my background. So, Yeah. yeah, but that's so strange that we were almost crossing paths. Yeah. Especially because we're both wearing the same glasses. Just and not that, coincidence. <laughs> um, so are you the same person? Oh my God, what if we're the same person? I, although I haven't got my pink hair anymore. <gasps> yeah. I feel like my brain just exploded. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you sort of mentioned that you're sort of from a literature background, that you've worked on American culture, you sort of made like a few allusions to modernism and stuff. So could you please introduce us to your project, which I think sounds amazing. <laughs> um, so my project looks at an American newspaper comic strip called Crazy Cat that was created by a guy called George Harriman between 1913 and, well, 1910, um, but six days a week from 1913, seven days a week from 1916 um, until 1944. Um, and I study it in the context of American modernism, which is something that has been touched on by scholars in the past, but um, a kind of systematic look at the strips against canonical modernist literary and artistic culture is something that I'm trying to, it's kind of like a, a gap that I feel I'm trying to fill. And basically my question is, what can we gain by bringing comic strips into the conversation about modernism, both for, um, you know, the, the age old, let's make comics as something worthy of study, which they don't need making, but they need people to realise it. Um, but then also more broadly, what we can learn about modernist texts by bringing comics into a conversation, which um, is something I found really enlightening, what what different things you kind of pick out of literature and art when you're looking at them side by side with the strip in terms of sequential reading or, I don't know, the, the features that are in them, tone, humour, mm. stuff like that. So for people who aren't familiar with Crazy Cat, how would you sort of describe it? <laughs> <laughs> Crazy Cat basically recounts the daily 
adventures of a cat called Crazy um, in a landscape called Coconino County, which is a kind of desert scape loosely based on Arizona. Crazy Cat is in love with a sadistic mouse called Ignaz Mouse, who finds Crazy immensely frustrating and so throws bricks at her head, which Crazy interprets as tokens of love. And so they're trapped in this cycle of not being able to express their feelings for one another. And then also in the equation is a dog called Officer Pup, who is in love with Crazy and tries to impede on Ignatz's violence and in the process upsets Crazy who feels that Ignatz no longer feels the same way so that that's the basic um plot the the kind of basic formula and then each day is a each day for 31 years is a, a kind of permutation of that basic formula how did you find your way to this particular strip? <laughs> it's funny because when you're into American newspaper comic strips, which I realise is fairly niche, Crazy Cat is the greatest comic strip and it's the one that, that everybody kind of looks up to and it's cited by an awful lot of comics artists as one of their greatest influences. So when you're in the world of comic strips, to read Crazy Cat or to study Crazy Cat is is not not really that unique. That said, I feel that outside of the world of comic strips it's still something that people aren't that familiar with and it really had ought to be the way i personally found it was in my third year of university i did a year abroad at occidental college in los angeles and while i was there it was a small liberal arts college and we were able to take classes in lots of different subject areas and i was fortunate enough that there was a comics class there which you didn't at the time it was 2011 you didn't at the time get an awful lot of in the uk that i was aware of um, so I was really excited about it and it, it Crazy Cat was a footnote to one of the articles we were reading. There wasn't a week on it or anything. And I think it was being compared with Popeye. Do you know, it's funny, I can't remember what the article was now and I really had ought to. <laughs> But I saw that they had one strip in the article and I read it and I just totally fell in love with it. I can't even describe it. And so from there, I did a lot of Googling and then I started buying the books, the Fantagraphics collections of Sundays, which unfortunately I don't have a full run of because they're quite expensive now. They're out of print. Um, and then I wrote, wrote my undergraduate dissertation on it. but sort of on a similar area. So also Crazy Cat and Modernism, but looking at overwhelming themes rather than very close analysis. And it just never went away, basically. It's just something that over the preceding seven years until I started my PhD, I just continued to love. Because it's comic strips and you said your background is in literature, how do you mix your analysis of text with your visual analysis? Because obviously there is a huge visual element to a comic and the way you read an image is not always the same as the way you read a text. That's a really good question and is something that I'm coming up against at the moment. So comic studies, because it's still sort of in its infancy at the moment, generally, especially in the UK, falls under other disciplines. So often either literature or art history. And so coming from a literature background didn't seem that odd. That said, I was fortunate that that comics class in America introduced me to some of the theory around how we read comics, particularly how we read image and text in conversation with one another and how an image can change the meaning of text that it's, you know, printed alongside and vice versa. And so I've got a little bit of background in that sort of thinking and that's something that I've carried through um, my master's dissertation. So although that was in the School of Literature, I wrote about visual culture as well about uh, surrounding Buffalo Bill so that involved a lot of 
image text analysis. So I definitely feel more confident to talk about the literary aspects. So, um, you know, sound imagery, uh, narrative characterization, stuff like that. Um, and something that I'm coming up against now is that um, in doing the project that I want to do, I need to know more about art history <laughs> because um, I'm increasingly wanting to hold Crazy Cat up alongside sketches and woodcuts and paintings from the early 20th century that I'm now having to learn the language to to discuss in any detail. So there's three different kind of aspects to it. You can come at it from a literary point of view, you can come at it from an art history point of view, and then most deeply you can come at it with both of those and look at how the two of them play off each other to create a third level of meaning. Your project sounds so good. I just The more <laughs> I listen to it, the more exciting I find it. Just because, yeah, I absolutely love that synthesis of visual and textual when it comes off when you see someone do it really well it's there's nothing quite like it for me when i'm when i'm dealing with sort of uh, source analysis obviously I, I work with photography a lot i read other people's histories of photography and the best examples really do sort of look at the photographs along with the text that they're with and talk about how captions give meaning to images and things like that which is so important when you think about how those images are consumed in a newspaper say you're reading a newspaper comic as a as a non-critical person as a person who's just reading a comic you are approaching it like that you're reading the words and the pictures together and then to sort of separate those out into fields of academic study is almost it's crazy <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it doesn't relate to how the actual medium works so to to sort of be bringing all that together and synthesizing it is really cool it's so interesting what you say about captions because so I recently got back from uh, an archival trip to America to look at um, a lot of the crazy, well, all of the Crazy Cat Sundays are now published and accessible reasonably if you've got some money. <laughs> um, but the dailies are kind of, some of them are published here and there. Um, a lot of them are in collections. They're not chronological or they aren't published in the context of their week, which is something that um, recently uh, the biographer, Michael Tisserand, the biographer of the uh, George Harriman, who I'm still Studying. He published an article about not understanding a joke in Crazy Cat being a reference to Mark Twain until he got into conversation with another scholar who encouraged him to read it in the context of the whole week's strips. And then the joke comes out. So the importance of reading these strips in their context is paramount. Mm -hmm. And so on the trip while I was there, some of the daily strips were published with titles. And I don't know if the titles were the product of the syndicate, local editors, Harriman himself. I'm not sure where they came from. But the way they reframe your reading of the strip is, is really interesting. And kind of there were some jokes that I wasn't getting until I was looking at them in the context of the title so I don't know that it raises a lot of questions around intent and authorship and stuff like that that I'm sure with captions you must come up against as well. Yeah absolutely and with photography sometimes you're lucky enough to know that the photographer wrote this caption so this it rep represents her view on what she was photographing. More often it's not clear and you can likely assume it was an editor who is then completely mediating and in interpreting that image for the audience in a way that if you're viewing the image sort of uncritically just while you read the morning paper, you're not going to notice that someone's trying to manipulate how you feel about that picture. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So what publications did Crazy Cat run in? Was it sort of syndicated nationally? Yeah, so um, it started in the New York Evening Journal um, and then eventually it was syndicated by the King Features Syndicate, which was a... So 
the New York Evening Journal was owned by William Randolph Hearst, um, who was an American newspaper magnate, owns an awful lot of newspapers nationally. And then when it was picked up by King Features Syndicate, it was also sent out to kind of local newspapers as well. So at its height, it was published nationally towards the end it it kind of decreased the number of papers it appeared in until i think eventually by the end it was only appearing in i'm not sure i can't remember and was this in the kind of what i would recognize as someone working in the later half of the century as the funny pages yes it was alongside other comics well that's a really good point as well so occasionally yes um and in some of the pages that i was looking at it appears on the comics page like every other comic i'm in a especially in the early ones in a vertical column down the side of the page and then you have the other the funnies as they were called going across the page however there was a period where it was published it was published in a, a supplement called city life magazine which was a kind of cultural supplement to Hearst newspapers that published um literature and art and I guess like things going on in the city unfortunately I haven't yet been able to get my hands on a city life magazine which Mm. means I haven't seen one in full but it does mean that kind of it this is why I think you know that there's a case to be made for why do we study comic like daily comic strips when they were so ephemeral so disposable they were read so quickly is there any point in analyzing them but by placing crazy cat in the city life section you demand of it that it's read in that way yeah absolutely rather than being situated here with the comics it's there with the culture right so it does even at the time it was being set apart as something a bit different exactly and this is a debate i'm having with myself at the moment with my thesis is would it be better to have a broader view and to look at comics more broadly in the early 20th century but there's so much about crazy cat that sets it apart and that that insists that it's read in a slightly different way to other daily strips which is not at all to diminish the cultural importance of other daily strips but is a kind of intellectual problem i'm coming up with when thinking about the scope of the thesis and i mean that's quite a classic PhD problem yeah. right like you found you find your niche and then you find that even your niche isn't niche enough and you have to kind of get smaller yeah but on the other hand it suggests that there's a lot of sort of scope in your project to kind of go in different directions what's the origin of your interest in comics more generally have you always been kind of a comics person or was it just that course you took at Occidental no so this is a really tricky question because I can't a lot of like memory is kind of fuzzy you know Mm. what I mean especially when you're thinking back and I remember when I was a child uh, living in Coventry that I would go to Forbidden Planet um, and I would look through their single issue boxes and I was really interested in the Dave McKeon covers to Sandman comics and I bought some of them but I actually am not sure that I ever read them I just love those covers Mm. I just love Dave McKeon's have you got those? They've been collected into a hardcover. Just the covers? Just the covers. No, I have not, but oh. I would like that. <laughs> I'll lend you my copy if you like. I would love that, yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I read comics thereafter. I think I kind of just liked that, like, hanging out at Forbidden Planet kind of made me a bit cool. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to s- secondary school, we had a library assistant who suggested that I... I mean, I kind of hung around the library quite a lot anyway, so I think she, like kind of just wanted to shape my reading a little bit Mm -hmm. but she suggested that I read Mouse and of course like that opens a whole bunch of other readings so I read Mouse and then from Mouse I got sort of into superhero comics but by superhero comics I'm talking about and again this isn't to diminish superhero comics it's just not something I know a a huge amount about but I read you know Arkham Asylum and Year One and these are Batmans um Dark Knight and stuff like that and then um Watchmen and and so it sort of proliferated out from there. Mm. And 
then the course at Occidental introduced me to lots of different narratives that I hadn't encountered before. And from there, it's just sort of grown. Fundamentally, my interest is in Crazy Cat and then historical texts, biographical texts. I love like uh, graphic autobiography and stuff like mm. that. Um, my partner is much more interested in superhero comics. And then I'm kind of, I'm starting to read some more fantasy comics, which is all very, very new to me. So, so we've got between us quite a broad range, but it's the thing that I find fascinating about comics, and it's a debate I see a lot online, is about people describing comics as a genre, but is that comics are not like that they're so huge like it's it's as yeah. huge as fiction and so it's, what you what you can be into is it's not a genre it's a form it's a form exactly 100 percent. yeah it's not like a novel is a genre it's yes <laughs> <laughs> novel nowadays is separated into so many different things mm-hmm. and we recognize that you know crime novel is very different from like buildings roman or you know some kind of a epic novel and stuff like that and all of those are different and we recognize that and i think there is importance in recognizing those subforms those genres within other forms of media especially since you know in a way when novel was becoming really really popular and it was one thing and then it kind of got shaped and it was very much a this form of popular literature and I think a similar thing is coming you know happening to comic books where they are you know because they're popular and because they're widely read they get separated into so many kind of subgenres and some of those will be you know very elite highbrow culture which you a lot of people wouldn't necessarily associate with comics but they are mm-hmm. and then some of them will be something a lot more all ages yes kind of well this is something i'm really coming up against is uh that i like is i'm very very wary of becoming a person who contributes to the idea that there are highbrow and lowbrow comics Mm. because that's something that was so damaging to comics early on Mm -hmm. um and you know reading the debates from early 20th century about how comic strips were responsible for the demise of literature and things like that is is we don't know what the kind of cultural relevance of this stuff is going to be until we have the ability to look back. Um, I do think that there's something to be said for the way comics and graphic novels and graphic literature more broadly is is organised in like bookshops, for instance, and that we have, you know, fiction and crime fiction and horror fiction and so on and so forth. But then you have the graphic literature section, which is just all put in together. And obviously the form is growing so quickly and increasingly is cropping up in areas where you might not expect it so i'm thinking about um i went to a talk when and please forgive me anybody who is familiar with this field because i'm very very new to it but i went to a talk about graphic medicine and the different ways that's being used both by practitioners to communicate with patients and by patients to tell their stories of what it's like to go through um certain kind of medical procedures or diagnoses or etc etc and then other researchers so i know there's a um i think a sociologist at the university of manchester who's published her research in the form of a comic and so actually the the form is growing in directions that we might not have seen coming so i think there's a danger about thinking of it as just this mass of I totally it's actually one of my big goals to translate some of my research into 
a graphic novel. Um, I really enjoyed your comic of the first podcast meeting. <laughs> I saw that on the Twitter. It was fabulous. <laughs> I used yeah, I used to keep a comic diary pretty reliably, but it's quite hard to keep up once you're in PhD life. Mm-hmm. The thing I was gonna uh, say just on the sort of like highbrow, lowbrow comics thing is something that actually uh, like I came across the other day. So I guess me and you are a bit more steeped in kind of like comics world at least a little bit and Anna is maybe a little bit less so so I'll kind of say this for the benefit of people who aren't. If you are quite steeped in comics world then one of the things that you will likely see people complain about say on Twitter is if a newspaper publishes an article with the title like wham pow comics not just for children anymore and people will be saying well comics haven't been children for children since you know their very origin Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, last week I was sorting through a huge stack of articles from the 1970s. I was just looking for references to like a particular topic to do with Vietnam. And just among there, just because it had come up in my keyword searches, was an article from about 1971 called Wham Pow! Comics Not Just for Children Anymore. And I just thought, we've just been having this conversation for so long. Why have we not made our peace with the fact that you can use pictures and words together to tell any story? That's that's funny for a number of reasons. <laughs> um, one is that um, is that the the conversation we have now about comics not just for children anymore. The kind of cultural flashpoint that people point to is the 1980s and the big three. You know, um, the big three comics that gave comics its um, credibility. But we've been having this conversation since 15 years before that as well. So <laughs> so it is just never ending. And the other point is. Um, one is that in the 19 kind of in the early newspaper comic strips a lot of the humor was about kind of adult life and marriage and housing and stuff like that so actually like the humor and betting and drinking and do you know what i mean so the humor wasn't directed at children anyway it was directed at the readers of the newspapers and the idea that now you like take the comics out and hand them to the children is is not necessarily like what the original audience was and but then also listening to your podcast with Jess there was a conversation there about how you spend the first year of your PhD feeling the need to justify what it is you're studying and definitely with comics that's something that now I try not to make any apology for like this is what I study and it's worthy of studying but it's taken a while to get there and to to not be kind of self-deprecating or jokey about the fact that these texts are rich with meaning and uh, cultural significance is that something that you feel you encountered other people not taking your topic seriously or conversely is that an anxiety that was kind of coming from within before we started recording you mentioned that you know other people can work on things which are very like heavy or difficult and meanwhile you work on something light-hearted is that something that you kind of feel i think it's partly internal and i also think it's partly when you know comics aren't a difficult sell to people within i'm loath to say it but like the academy anymore it's increasingly cropping up in various departments however as somebody who left a career to come back to university to now spend three years studying comic strips for people who find the concept of doing a phd in literature kind of um inherently frivolous 
Yeah, then to say you're not only doing it on literature, but you're not even doing it on one of the great texts you're doing it on a newspaper comic strip, I think can be quite difficult to it, mm. like explain. So I think it's a bit of both. I think like ha- having to describe to people what it is I do with my life now <laughs> uh, comes with questions. Uh, but also, yeah, there's there's certainly a bit of like internalised kind of anxiety about the topic. On, on this point, and, and this is a rec- very recent occurrence, but... Um, on, on this Sunday, I was told by someone when they asked me about my PhD topic that with PhD in that, I could get a job in Costa Coffee or Coffee Nero. I yeah. When oh. you t- when you text me about that, I was I just had to go off and fume for a little bit. I was so <laughs> cross. But it's just a great example of someone who doesn't understand the reasons why we do these things beyond just well a phd will spit me out into a job like yeah there's a lot more to it than that and of course we all hope that it will have some bearing on our our prospects in the future but it doesn't have to be this this straight line journey and i think perhaps especially as female academics it's good for us to get comfortable with knowing that we don't have to justify ourselves yeah the we're doing this because it's important. We are. We wouldn't be here if someone else didn't agree that there was something <laughs> of value in our work. So we've just got to kind of keep our noses to the grindstone and try not to worry too much about what other people think. I've had a like a tearful interlude this week just with like, my work's not important and no one will ever care. But, you know, you have days like that. Just try and have days that are not like that as well, I guess. Of course. And I think when you lose sight of the importance of your project, there's also something to be said just for the fact that we can be here for our own personal development and like not everything has to kind of come out with a quantifiable uh, and I think about money that <laughs> like reward um, but that actually we can be doing this because it's something that we want to do for our own like personal satisfaction yeah. and that's not something to be ashamed of and yeah thinking about our work solely in terms of the money it will make us or perhaps more likely the money it will make someone else <laughs> is actually basically the least valid way to think about a project that's designed to add to the sum total of human knowledge that if some if we know something at the end of our work that no one knew before then then we've done what we set out to do and if it doesn't make us rich then i'm sure we'll get by of course yeah (laughs) (laughs) goss the coffee's always there yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) the barista plan is the backup plan yeah we can start a we can start a little kind of book exchange or something (laughs) hold little readings and things yeah exactly we'll just we'll work at the uh the world's most overqualified costa but (laughs) (laughs) dr costa oh my god dr costa (laughs) (laughs) well we we were we were talking about a plan of setting up uh, a hot chocolate shop after finishing the phd yeah, if, if everything falls through for me and Anna, we're going to start a hot chocolate place where instead of having cream and marshmallows, we top it with the stuff that's inside a Tunnock's tea cake. Oh my goodness, yes, that sounds lush. If you can find a way to do them vegan as well, I'm like so there. I'll, I'll work on it. it probably yeah. I think I think there's a vending machine in Affleck's that do vegan tea cake, like Tunnock's oh tea cakes. God. I know. I haven't tried them, so I'll let you know. Yeah, feed, yes. feedback. Yeah. I will. We'll, we'll make yeah. it work. Important. <laughs> Coconut <laughs> milk and carrageenan and stuff. We'd, we'll make it work. <laughs> 
this seems like actually a really good point to kind of transition into the final question that we ask all our guests on the podcast, which is to to share something funny or sort of humorous from your time in the PhD so far. I really struggled with this. Um, I was talking to Georgia about this before the and Anna before the podcast began that for somebody who studies humour and comedy on a daily basis, I really thought I would be better at coming up with one of these and I wasn't. Um, but then I thought about alongside the PhD, I do widening participation workshops for schools. And recently I was at, well, no, it's happened on a number of occasions. So what we do is we talk about uh, the transition between panels and how we can use it to tell different kinds of stories. And I try and use a selection of different types of comics so web comics comic books comic strips graphic novels um from over the last hundred years just so that there's also a bit of a survey of different types of graphic text and one of them of course i use crazy cat and i try not to talk to them too much about crazy cat although it's like difficult and the scene transition in the crazy the panel transition in the crazy cat comic is a what we call a subject subject transition which means that the character the the you know the subject like you have a subject of a sentence changes between the two panels but the main idea stays the same um so the two panels that i've chosen is ignatz mouse and officer pup talking about they're both talking about bricks which is a kind of central icon of the strip and officer pup is a dog and ignatz mouse is a mouse and i obviously adore the strips and have been reading them for years and don't even think about how other people see them because i just assume that they see them in the same light as i do and the number of uh workshops i've led where the students have been like yeah that's a subject subject transition and i've been like how can you tell and they go well there's the mouse talking about the brick and then there's also the I don't know, is that like a bear or like a frog or something like that <laughs> also talking about a brick? And I just, Harriman's artwork is quite unusual and is very different to what they will have seen now, but it just doesn't even occur to me that people will not understand that that is, of course, a police officer dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. I think that's quite a, just a good example of how we can get quite steeped in our own research can't we and it's it's probably really interesting to get especially children's or like younger people's perspectives it absolutely is uh yeah they're really nice we always a, a, a fresh pair of eyes is always a good thing to have but there's you can't get eyes much fresher than that i guess That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it definitely gives you a new perspective on the research <laughs> yeah i I, th I certainly think that this is the value to kind of you know public communication of your research mm -hmm. because you know like there is this thing even in history pgr seminar or something like that when you show to someone something you're like well obviously foucault applies here and then everyone's like yes obviously foucault applies here and like being able to actually communicate this to someone new and then say you know them say okay well this doesn't necessarily make sense to me and you know go away and think well why didn't it make sense is yeah. actually i think really valuable and something that like it would be really exciting to be able to do this more like i don't know a public lecture series based on our phd research well actually the research and development unit for the faculty of humanities has this thing called humanitas brew which mm -hmm. is uh, doing 10 minute presentations on your research to non-academic audiences in informal environments so that's something that so i'm going to be doing one i think in january maybe at partisan it's not locked down yet so that's if that's something you're interested in doing we yeah. can uh, the research and development department is also a funder of not safe for publication so thanks guys <laughs> <laughs> oh and jess is doing one soon i think yes yeah jess, jess is doing one on the 5th of december 
Do you mind if I plug the EWIP seminars? Please. Of course. Um, so one of the ways we're trying to tackle kind of the isolation of humanities research so that you have the history seminars, which are fantastic. And so kind of building on what they're doing for history students. Um, starting in January, we'll have the EWIP series, which stands for EAC Work in Progress Seminars. Um, and they'll basically be a space for students, postgraduate researchers in the Department of American Studies, English and Creative writing to share anything that they've currently got in process it can be a section of a thesis chapter a draft conference paper a blog post anything that you kind of want a bit of feedback on or just want to practice pitching to an audience um so the audience members will be in your field but they won't be specialists and it's it's basically a chance for us just all to meet each other hear about each other's research and support each other with our development each seminar will also be followed with a wine reception so free wine so please come um, and if you follow us on twitter you can see the current call for papers which is a rolling call for papers and we're on twitter at e-w-i-p-s-a-t-u-o-m so e-wips at u-o-m thank you so much for joining us today stevie it's been i can pretty much unreservedly say a joy <laughs> <laughs> i have absolutely loved it so thank you very much for being our guest anna thank you as always thank you georgia thank you so much for having me and, as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.